0: Lord, we indeed worship you through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We come as your people, thankful for every good gift that has come from your hand, and we give back to you, not begrudgingly, but with cheerful and joyful hearts, knowing that you are the giver of all things. And so we pray that you would take these and use these according to your purposes for your glory. And I pray that you would bless both the gifts and the giver today. Lord, cause us to grow in our generosity Uh, that we would live lives not for ourselves, but unto your glory for the sake of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, please. Jeremiah 29, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who were prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. To Shemaiah of Nehelam, you shall say, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priests instead of Jehoiada the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, send to all the exiles saying, thus says the Lord concerning Shemiah of Nehelam, because Shemiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemiah of Nehem and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit to you this time as we come to hear your Word. We've heard it read. Now would you speak it to our hearts by your Spirit's power. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As you can tell just from the reading, this is uh, a chapter that We're in this thematic section of Jeremiah now. This is a chapter that summarizes an exchange of letters going back and forth between Jerusalem and Babylon during what we've called or referenced as the pre-exile period. I keep saying the pre-exile period rather than the first exile and the second exile because I think that becomes confusing because there was another exile. If you remember about 125 years earlier when the northern kingdom was taken by Assyria, And so that's usually referred to as the first exile. This whole Babylonian episode is the second exile. But within this exile, there are two exiles. There's this pre-exile and this later exile that's going to come. There'll be a test later, so write all of this down. In other words, this is that period of time between 597 B.C., 587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came. He took some of the people back to Babylon. He's going to come back for more. And it's in this period of time that after Jehoiachin or Jeconiah, as he's called, is taken along with his mother and so forth. So what you have is you have two groups of people from Judah. You have the people in Jerusalem and in Judah, the land. And then you have this other group now in Babylon. And they're there for over 10 years before the rest of them are brought into exile. So you've got this dynamic and what Jeremiah is now being tasked to do in this section is he's serving as a prophet to both. He's not just speaking in Jerusalem where he's physically located. He's now writing letters to the people who are already in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah has already said, and part of his message is going to continue to be, Nebuchadnezzar's coming back for the rest of you. Right. He's coming. Don't, don't think that this is what I was talking about when I said there would be an exile. And don't think that it's going to be short lived. The, the, the peace prophets were saying that it's only going to last two years. Jeremiah is saying, no, it's going to last 70 years. It's not going to end quickly. And we see that reiterated in this passage as well. 70 years is the timeline before the exile will end. And yet what happens is not only do you have false prophets in Jerusalem who are speaking against what Jeremiah has said, now you've got them in exile. So here you have people living in the land, far from their homeland, against their wishes as captives, and and, and these... False prophets emerge among them as well, and they're all saying the same thing. It's, they're called peace prophets because they only prophesy peace. They only prophesy good things. They don't speak any of uh, the, the, the judgment that Jeremiah has been given to bring. And we've seen in the previous chapter, for example, Hananiah, who was one of these peace prophets who lost his life because he lied to the people and caused them to rebel against God. And now there are these in Babylon as well. So this is a letter-writing campaign, uh, and the letters that are described here, we have uh, at least three, but there are more if we notice some of the language. The first letter is from Jeremiah to the exiles, verses 1 to 23, and then you have this response from Shemaiah in Babylon to the people of Jerusalem uh, in verses 24 to 28, and then a response from Jeremiah these are not whole letters. We can tell by the structure. There's no salutations and greetings as would have been common in this time period in a letter. Uh, there's no closings, all the things that would have been a part. So these are summations or summaries of letters that were sent back and forth. And we noticed the shorter parts certainly were that. Uh, so... If we look at this section as thematic, that what is, you know, in the first scroll or the first half of the book of Jeremiah, we have certain events that portray Jeremiah's ministry and life. In this next section, we have these thematic representations, and we've already seen this uh, in, in the previous chapters. This is another one of those. So this is a kind of a summary of this letter-writing event that went on uh, back and forth between the exiles and those who remained in Judah. And from this, I think we can with some confidence deduce that there were more letters than just these that we have here referenced. I think this was actually something that was ongoing, something that was taking place. In fact, if you look in verse 25, he says to Shemaiah, you have sent letters plural, and it's plural in the Hebrew. So it was, there was, there were more than just the three letters that are referenced here. And I can't help but think in terms of our own modern day blog posts or now the Substack stack uh, phenomena that's kind of replacing blog posts, or if you think of social media and so forth, how people are are getting online and having exchanges and debates and so forth, that this is almost a little bit slower, you know, it wasn't instantaneous with the push of a button, but this is kind of what is happening. They're having these arguments uh, back and forth through letter writing. And this increases the role that Jeremiah had. Not only is he a prophet who proclaims verbally the message of God, not only is he a prophet who carries out the object lessons. Remember, he's had some of these object lessons that he's wearing the yoke and the, the linen, uh, belt, uh, that he had to wear. But now he is, has this letter writing component as well, uh, and, 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 You know, what an exhausting task is all I can think of. Like, you know, there's a reason why I don't get online and get engaged every time I, I do, I do read and I do write, but I don't post. I just write for myself and then I delete it all because it's never fruitful. And I think the one or two times that I did post and I said something to Leslie, she's like, why did you do that? Because it's never fruitful and it gets you in this engaged in this further discussion and you can't let it go and so forth. So I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm just saying why I don't do it. I just think of Jeremiah having to do this through this letter writing campaign that this, he must have just been exhausted having all of these, these uh, elements. Well, in the midst of these letters, we find some well known and well-beloved verses that believers throughout time have used around which to understand life and ministry. You probably recognize some of these verses. As dark as Jeremiah has been thus far, a message of judgment mostly, we do see some words of hope in not just this chapter but in the coming chapters as well that even before we get to the promise of the new covenant and the coming chapters, we have hints of it here in these instructions that are sent to those who are in exile. And so look in verse 1. We are introduced to Jeremiah's letter writing addressed to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I won't go through all the categories that are listed here, but I'll just mention the one category, surviving elders of the exiles, simply because that may not be as straightforward as the others. We're not given further explanation as to who these are or why they are specifically mentioned. Uh, some have suggested that it's simply just what it is, it's, it's plain, that these are the elders who survived, they are still living. Maybe they are, this is in some reference to the journey itself, that they survived the journey. Others have suggested that we see and we know from other passages uh, in Jeremiah as well as other books of the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar was, um, uh, he, he did not like anyone to oppose him. And so, he was pretty harsh in going after those who were not on his side. And so, it is quite possible that these elders uh, were those who uh, survived his oppression. Uh, you, you realize the connection here. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar from from the book of Daniel. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to to the idol, and they were thrown where? In the fiery furnace. Did you catch that as we were reading this today? He's... He, he's the, this is, the fiery furnace is his thing, and it seems like, and he seems like he's quite liberal in using it, that whoever, uh, you know, it's, it's, I can't remember what movie it was, but the king, the French king, off with your head, you know, it was everybody. If you looked at him funny, he would, off with your head. It was that kind of approach to, uh, this, that Nebuchadnezzar had to anyone who opposed him. And God uses that. We see that it's the false prophets. God uses Nebuchadnezzar as his servant of judgment, that the false prophets are thrown into the fiery furnace. But the living elders may have been simply that, those who have survived the oppression of this tyrant. Verse 2 gives us the timeline of when the letter was sent. We've already talked about that around 590, sometime after 597 BC, after Jeconiah was carried off. And we see the repeated list from chapter 24 when that was described, uh, that event was described. And then in verse 3, we see some of the details about the carrier, uh, Elash and Camaria. And we might be tempted just to read by that, uh, that these were just mailmen, but trust me, they were not just mailmen. Uh, these were. Uh, Ambassadors, these were uh, you know, entourages that were sent to, uh, to, from Zedekiah to Babylon, and it likely had nothing to do with Jeremiah. They were on task from Zedekiah probably to keep the peace, probably to reassure Nebuchadnezzar that he was still in submission, that everything was good. And we know that that was a tension the entire time of his 11-year reign and eventually led to the end of his reign. So that's what, that's what this entourage was about. But there's a little nugget here that uh, that might encourage us in this this part of the story. You know, we know, we understand that letters weren't delivered the way they are today, where you just address it, drop it in a box, and it goes where it's supposed to go. There, these couriers, and they only carried the king's stuff. They weren't uh, going around collecting other people's letters. But he took Elash and Kamaria took uh, Jeremiah's letter because of one of the connections that we see here. Elash is the son of Shaphan. You ever wonder why all this extra information is given? Well, here's why. Shaphan was an influential member of King Josiah's court. King Josiah was, of course, a good king. And he was the father of someone else that we've seen, a Hiacan. Now, you may not remember Ahaikim from chapter 26, but he was the one who, after Jeremiah had the trial and his life was literally, I mean, they were pressing in on him. They wanted to kill him. And it says that Ahaikim basically took him and took care of him. And, and you think, who is this Ahaikim? And we understood that he was part of this very influential family in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and, in, in the country of Judah. Uh, Ahiakim was Elash's brother. Their father, Shaphan, is the same person. And so I mentioned the kind of the correlation between our modern day Bush family or Kennedy family, that these people, this was a family that was well connected. Lots of people in leadership and so forth. And so the Lord provided favor amongst these leaders in the land that ensured, in one case, Jeremiah's protection, chapter 26. And in this case, it allows Jeremiah to slide his letters in with the king's mail to get delivered. And so let me just say, um, a lot of times we worry and stay up at night and fret over how things are going to get accomplished, uh, how we're going to solve problems, how we're going to find answers. Just remember, Elash, when you're laying awake in bed at night, that even God can make sure that the mail gets through to accomplish all of his purposes. He can. Do, he, he's sovereign over all these things. And he worked uh, in this case through this small detail that we would miss if we didn't do a little study and and figure out how all the people are connected here. Now, beginning in verse 4, we get to the content of the letter uh, after God's address to his people. And the instructions for the people are to begin building up. Now, you may remember from the introduction in Jeremiah chapter 1 that the Lord anointed him as a prophet and said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so far, most of the message has been the former. We haven't seen very much of the latter until we get here. Because this is exactly what the Lord tells the people to do, to build and to plant. Verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, if we plucked this verse out of its context, it would sound really kind of trivial. Of course, you need to build houses and plant gardens. We need a place to live and we need food to eat. These are kind of basic life needs that we all have. But given their context, of course, we understand why it was such a big deal. The people didn't want to stay in exile. They didn't want to build. They didn't want to put down roots. They didn't want to plant themselves. They felt, of course, out of place in a foreign land, and they wanted to be delivered. And now, as we see as the passage moves on, they've got these false prophets telling them there's no need to build houses and plant gardens because we're going to get out of here really soon. This Nebuchadnezzar is going to be overthrown in a couple years, and we'll be going back. And so part of Jeremiah's message, the message the Lord gives him to send in this letter, is settle in, folks. It's going to be a long ride, at least 70 years. That's, that's the timeline. And so they are to build houses, to plant gardens. But not only that, they're called on to be fruitful and to multiply through the giving of their children in marriage. Now, that's the mandate given in the garden that extends on and expands throughout Scripture. It expands particularly through the Abrahamic covenant in which Israel is told that all the nations would be blessed through them. But if you were part of the people of Judah in this day, is this how you would have imagined God carrying out the Abrahamic covenant? You might have thought, this Lord, uh, you know, I'm all, all in favor of blessing the nations. I'm, I'm, I'm good with being a blessing, but not this way. Not by being plucked out of my land, carried off against my will as a prisoner, held captive in exile in Babylon. Not the plan, Lord. This is not what I signed up for. And yet this is how the Lord carried this out. The people had become, and we've seen this over and over, very insular in their thinking about being God's people. But rather than understanding they were to be priests to the nations, they understood themselves simply as were God's chosen people. And so they, they saw themselves as were the favorites. And they became, in a sense, spoiled in that thinking. So here, God is shaking them out of their comfort zones a bit. And of course, we know this is the judgment because of their sin, which Jeremiah has explained over and over again, that this is, this is judgment. But it's also a a message of hope within that, that God is actually going to continue fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant through their exile, through being living in a place against their will as prisoners that God would fulfill his covenant promises. And so we have to ask ourselves, (laughs) have we ever been in a situation in life where God providentially set us somewhere or in a situation where we thought, this is not what I planned. (laughs) This is not the way I imagined it. Maybe it was your education. You started off on one trajectory, and through whatever means, that trajectory was altered. And you, to this day, have never fulfilled that dream. Or maybe it was in marriage, you thought marriage was going to look a certain way, your husband or your wife was going to be this amazing person, and you're disappointed. Maybe you feel hamstrung in life. Or maybe you thought you'd be married and you're not, and you wonder what is happening. Maybe you've uh, thought about retirement all of your life, that you were going to retire at 62 and a half, and you'd have enough for a weekly round of golf and a trip to Hawaii with the grandkids, only to discover that here you are and the well is dry. And my point in saying all of this is that often we think God has messed up, that he's failed us, that he's forgotten us, this was not our plan. And what we fail to see is that he has another plan. And it is a better plan, even though it may not feel like a better plan for us. God had not forgotten his people, even though he was judging them, uh, even though they were being disciplined. He had not forgotten the promises that he had given, and he was going to carry that out. And so God sends the message that he has them in his hands, even in judgment, even in exile, even far away from the temple and far away from their homeland. And then to expand on this idea of being a blessing to the nations, he adds, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Verse 7. If you've ever read a missionary newsletter or a church planter newsletter, you know that this is probably one of the favorite verses used. And I have actually seen uh, this verse used to, to justify stuff that I never would have thought could have been legitimate ministry. Like, you can put anything into this category. Bless the city? Okay, we're going to do X, Y, or Z. I'm not going to step on any toes today and call anything out, but I'm just saying it's, it can be fairly broadly applied. And when we take it out of its context, um, it can become problematic. The other thing I've seen is that, you know, the, the command to pray for the city has kind of been narrowed in on as if the city is some kind of uh, more God-honoring place to serve. Now, the city can certainly be strategic. I get that. And there may be times where, you know, there's certain uh, avenues where you start with the city and you work outward or something. But we're also to care about the suburbs in the small towns and the farmlands and the rural areas and the faraway countries. Seeing the welfare of the area in which you live and serve is of benefit. This makes sense, right? In its welfare you will find your welfare. There's almost a common sense, of course, that makes sense, but it is more than simply cultural improvement, and we have to ask ourselves questions when it comes to that. Now Understanding the context, and this is important with all of our favorite verses in the Bible, but since we have a few here in this chapter, I'm going to be pointing this out. The context is key to remember what was meant by these verses. And this is written to exiles in Babylon who needed to hear, you're going to be here for a little while. They didn't want to believe that. They wanted to escape. They wanted to believe the false prophets who said they were going to get out of there sooner. So the message to seek the welfare of the city is basically a message to put your butt down, plant yourself, stay put, and prosper the city because in its welfare you're going to find welfare. That was what the message was. And so we need to remember that context as well. Now, there's a principle here that I think we can employ in our own lives, and that is in the creation mandate, we are called to be fruitful and multiply, and that still applies to us today. But unfortunately, that is often only used in reference to having children. And while it would include having children, please know that it doesn't only mean having children. That is not the only way to be fruitful and multiply. Whether you're single or married, whether you have children or not, you can be fruitful and multiply. You are called to be fruitful and multiply. And we don't have time to unpack all of this this morning. I feel like this could be a sermon or maybe even two of ways that we can be fruitful and multiply. But let me just speak to it in terms of fruit of the Spirit, uh, Sermon on the Mount In a, in a qualitative sense, it's growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has created us for good works to walk, you know, before we were ever even made, He determined that we would walk in them. And so we were made to be fruitful people, to bear fruit. And so that is what is being described here, and that fruit then is designed to spill out of our lives to to benefit other people that in a sense, we have fruit on our limbs that is for other people to to nourish them that 's the picture that is being described in being fruitful so in a, in an idyllic sense, it's certainly being patient, being kind. Walking in faithfulness, but practically speaking, it's it's, it's, all—it's—it's—it's very specific, right? We're we're called to visit the lonely, Um, taking a meal to someone who is sick, serving in the nursery, giving to someone who is in need. These are things practical ways that we can bear fruit and multiply. And in that multiplication sense, again, a lot of times we think of, of of it just in terms of having children, but it's not multiplication. Is also multiplication of our fruit. And so how do we do that? Well, when you are engaged in visiting the sick or the lonely, when you are taking someone a meal, take someone with you. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's someone who's new to the faith or doesn't really, you know, they're looking for ways to serve and they don't really, haven't really seen that. Um, take somebody with you. Learn to multiply in that sense. Let them see how to, to minister and be fruitful and to serve. Or a lot of what I see around here is when people are engaged in ministry, just getting someone and training them, showing them how to do this. You know, come, come with me, be a part of this. And there are a number of ways that you can serve here. But this isn't the only, I mean, we're, we're here for, you know, a couple hours every Sunday. There are many ways that go way beyond this. And so look for ways to multiply what you're doing by inviting other people into that act. And we could elaborate as well on seeking the welfare of wherever we live, the city in which we live. I think the same extrapolations could be made. The sentiment is simply this. Bloom where you're planted. Understand that God has providentially placed you right here for today. And until he moves you, this is where you need to bloom, to be fruitful, to multiply, to seek the welfare of all that is around you. Do good and do goodness. Let, let your life be fruitful. So often. I think we get afraid to talk about doing good because we're saved by grace through faith and we know it's not our works, lest anyone should boast. But we're saved unto good works. So it's, it's just, the, the good works are not the problem, it's the order. We don't do our good works to get saved. It's that because we're saved, we do good works. So it is a fruit that bears from our lives. So don't be afraid of good works. We're called to that. We're called to do goodness. We're called to live with a mindset of giving rather than receiving. Expect to give up rather to get in all of life. Expect to give up when you come to church on Sunday. Don't just come here with the mindset of receiving. Now, all of us have Sundays where we just need to receive, and that's okay, and that's good. The church needs to be that kind of safe place. But it doesn't need to be that way forever. So if you're not serving, look for ways to serve. But don't only think here In church, think beyond, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your vocation, in whatever context you are currently in in life. What are ways that you can give up rather than receive? How can you do good and seek good for others? Well, to make it even more concrete, the Lord goes on and explains it further. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is something that we can all do. And I would say that to even if you're you're a shut-in. And and you say, I can't do any of those things you just mentioned, Seth. You can do this. You can pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is something we can all do. Now, what's interesting here is that the people who would have heard this, this would have been something, if they weren't mad about being exiles, if they weren't mad about it lasting 70 years, if they weren't mad about being told to plant and to build houses and to settle in and to have, you know, multiply and all this kind of stuff, this is really going to make them mad because they were only going to pray for the peace of one city, and that was Jerusalem. They were not about to pray for the peace of another city, especially the city that just carried them off into exile. And yet, this is what they're told to do. Pray on its behalf. Pray for the city and the nation that has taken you into exile. How contrary to their way of thinking. And yet, isn't this what Jesus taught us? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that we talk about over and over again, where in our weakness, He displays His power. Where in our humility, He displays His glory. And where He works even through our sins, and in spite of our sins, to display His redeeming grace and love. So God is at work, not to make you the superstar, but to show that He is. And so even in this Old Covenant setting, we can see the light of the New Covenant begin to shine through the cracks, that our deliverer is coming, that we're going to be saved, our greatest problem is going to be solved. The Lord then through his prophet goes on to warn against the false prophets in verse 9. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Don't listen to them, he tells the people. And then he gives them that timeline, 70 years it's going to be before they return to the homeland. And it's in that context of... Sit down, buckle up. It's going to be a long ride, 70 years, that he now says to them these words. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a verse that is well-loved. I've seen it in greeting cards. I've seen it uh, read at weddings. Uh, it's been on signs at graduation ceremonies, even, even a few signs at sporting events. Yep. It is a beautiful verse, and it's a beautiful promise, but we need to recognize it for what it is and what it isn't. First, it is first and foremost a unique promise to Judah in exile in Babylon. That's where it first applies, and it includes more than just this one sentence, I rarely see people put eleven through. They always put twenty nine, eleven. There's there's the sentence it keeps going after eleven. There's there's more thought there. But that's we'll talk about that in a minute. So it's more than just this one sentence. Now we could apply it in a very general sense to our future. And it's true that we do have a great future in store. Uh, the, fulfill, the fulfillment of redemption in Christ Jesus that's realized in the consummation of his kingdom at his return, that would certainly fit in this in a very general sense. But what it isn't is this sentimental well-wish that all your dreams will come true. And so if by that you mean... Um, I hope all of your dreams come true. Probably not the verse that you want to include on your greeting card. But I'm not saying don't use it. I'm just saying understand what you mean by what you use it or what you intend. You see, our true hope is beyond graduating high school or getting into the college of our dreams or winning a football game or having a fairy tale marriage. Our true hope is that our sins are washed away, that we are forgiven, and that we will one day be with God forever. And if we read on, which we're going to, we're going to see that's actually what Jeremiah is describing. He's describing a future and a blessing that he's promised them. He says, Then you will call upon me, and I will come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29.11, the hope of Jeremiah 29.11 is this. This is the true hope of Judah, to seek and find the Lord. The Lord is their hope. That's what he's saying to them. I am your future. I am your hope. As it began with them, it also began with us, that when we call upon the name of the Lord, this is what we're seeking. We confess, we agree with him about our sinful condition. We fall on his mercy and receive his grace by faith. And where Judah would be brought back to the promised land, folks, our promised land is much, much better. Our fortunes, our true promised land, awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. And our redemption in Christ is better than any wealth, happiness, or elation that we can experience in this world. The world to come will simply be better. Well, in the remaining verses of this first letter, verses in 15 to 23, we have a a recounting of other details, including much of the prophecy that Jeremiah has delivered. What he's basically doing is applying the, the prophecy both directions. It's unilateral. You're not exempt by being in Babylon and for those of you still in Judah, you're not exempt. He's telling them, I'm going to send pestilence, sword, famine back on them. They're going to come. In other words, you're, you know, you're, it's not like you guys uh, were unlucky. Uh, they're going to come. They're going to join you very shortly in a few years. And so he makes that clear. But one of the things he also does is call out these two false prophets, Ahab and Zedekiah, of course this is not Ahab and Zedekiah that we've known in other places in lots of common names these were two of them so these are two two false prophets we know nothing else about them but their lies leads them to the same result uh as that of Hananiah I guess that's the yellow plane uh so anyway we're okay just for anyone who's not used to the yellow plane he's just never knew he flew on Sunday um so the, these two false prophets uh would meet the same demise as Hananiah they would die by the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we're told that their names would become a curse among the exiles. And then the Lord closes the letter simply by saying this, I am the one who knows, verse 23, and I am witness. In other words, there will be accountability. The liars will be found out. Nothing is hidden from me. Well, following this letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles, one of the false prophets there were introduced to him next, Shemaiah. He decides to send a letter back. And you can tell he's read Jeremiah's letter because he references the quote about building and planting. And so he's, he's rebutting this particular letter. So this is where I can imagine the whole idea of blog posts and, and, and Twitter uh, uh, responses back and forth. Now he writes his letter and addresses it to one of the priests, Zephaniah. Zephaniah's not the high priest. He's probably in the second second role as the chief enforcer. You remember Pashur. Back in chapter 20, who put Jeremiah in the stocks, this is the same role that Zephaniah is now in. And he he challenges him, Shemaiah does, as to why he hasn't put this madman, he doesn't even call him by name at first, he calls him a madman, and he challenges him in verse 26 to put him in the stocks and neck irons. But then he goes on and he does call him out by name, and he complains that uh, Jeremiah is over there uh, writing letters to the exiles uh, over there in Babylon saying that they're Their stay is going to be at least 70 years. And Jeremiah hears of this because Zephaniah reads the letter out loud. He reads it to everybody in the temple. So this was a very public kind of debate. Again, I get the idea of social media. Like it's out there for everybody to read. Everybody hears the the going-ons back and forth. And so Jeremiah hears this read out loud in the temple setting in front of the people, verse 29. So now Jeremiah, by the command of the Lord, responds in another letter to correct Shemaiah. And he tells the exiles, uh, he addresses it to them, but he's speaking to or of Shemaiah that, that they are not to listen to him. That He tells lies that God did not send him. And so he pronounces judgment, and he says that Shemaiah, for his deception, will not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. And so in addition to prophesying and preaching sermons, in addition to object lessons, wearing yokes and linen belts or underwear, whichever you, however you land on that translation, uh, and all the object lessons that Jeremiah was to carry out, now he is in this riding battle back and forth going on between the exiles. And I I do think that there are ways that we can relate to this, and in particular the passage that uh, we read this morning in First Peter, knowing that we are exiles in the world in which we live. Now, we haven't been forcefully carried off into a foreign land, yet we know that we are not of this world. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. We are on a journey to a better city Peter, in the next chapter, after what we read this morning, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This echoes much of what Jeremiah would have said, or did say, rather, in his uh, prophecies to uh, not just the people in Judah, but specifically to the ones already in exile. And so when we go on and read what Peter says in the next sentence, we see more clearly how it connects. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, it's not only that in seeking the welfare of the city we find our welfare. That's common sense if we really think about it. Seek the welfare of the city, in it you will find your welfare. In fact, we could even see where that could be selfishly motivated that we could we could seek the welfare of the city for our own benefit, and often that's what we do. Um, but seeking the welfare of the city, Peter expands this, that seeking the welfare of the city, while it also benefits us, does have a greater purpose. And it's expanded to include here the suffering of being spoken against falsely, being falsely accused. And so the people and us are told, Get, let your light shine so that it may, they may see your good deeds. How you respond to suffering, in this case being falsely accused, how you respond to that becomes then a testimony, a good work, that others may see this and glorify God in heaven. Now, I wish I could say it's a simple formula. Hey, folks, do good and people will trust Jesus. But we all know that it doesn't work like that. It's not a short game. In fact, in most cases, it's a long game. It is a continued obedience in the same direction, also known as faithfulness or long-suffering. We are called to faith, but we are called to live faithfully. The results, of course, are in God's hands, and we trust Him with those results, but we are to live as unto Him. The exiles in Babylon... They were called to do this, to, be, to seek the welfare of the city. But they had a timeline. You and I don't. We don't know how long it's going to be. And I, I admit this does make it a little bit harder, yet the call is still the same. Live faithfully and live well. We don't have a timeline of when Christ will return, but we also don't have a timeline in our own lives. None of us know when we're going to breathe our last. We all know that there's, there's an expiration date, but we don't know when that is. Be productive. Contribute good things. If you make boxes, make the best boxes that you can make. Make make the most well-crafted boxes that you can build. If you represent people in some capacity, do so with all of your heart. Labor for their sake. If you bag groceries, do so with care and grace. If you are retired, there may be things that you think, I can't do any of that stuff. One thing we can all do, pray. And that's what we're called to do here. Pray to the God who has power to change hearts, to save the lost, to restore marriages, to redirect wayward children, and to restore the years the locusts have stolen. While we are all strangers in a strange land, we're exiles on this earth, we do have a future that is certain. We may not know the timeline, but we know the outcome. We may not be in the situation we thought we would, but we know that we'll be delivered. And we may be so clouded in pain by confusion right now, but we know that when he returns, every tear will be wiped away. You see, our hope is in the Lord and none other. And that is what the blessing of Jeremiah 29, 11 is all about. The future, the hope, we do have one. It does apply to us. But it's not winning football games or getting into the college of our choice or having the perfect retirement or the perfect anything in this life. This is the short game. There's a longer game that we're called to, that we're committed to, that we know the outcome of. He has died so that we might live, and he has been raised from the dead that we might live forever. We will have a true home, no longer living as strangers and aliens. We will be home forever with him, and we'll know only joy. We have a future and hope in Christ Jesus. Having been found by him, we will finally be restored, fulfilled, completed, and whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the future that we have. And Lord, we confess that our wants and our wishes are more about those immediate things. Uh, we, we want, uh, in a sense, our best life now. And I pray that you would continually refine our perspective to see that there's something better that awaits us. And that as Peter pointed out, that, that there's that there'll be times where we're, we're suffering, but even that can produce fruit. Would you help us to see that? That even our pain, even our suffering, even when we're falsely accused or we're wronged against, that even that can produce a fruit that brings glory to you. And would you give us a great confidence that what awaits us is better and is good, and would you... Give us a longing for that, to see your face one day, to be with you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and respond.